The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I knew that something needed to be done. Something needed to be done? Yes. Uh, and, and what was that? That was my place in the world, my story. Uh, the story of myself, the story of my people. Um, I was already familiar with stories of different people. Um, I mean, because you grew up reading English literature. Yes, yes, and uh, having an, uh, an English education and encountering accounts of events and people. And um, at some point, I began to miss my own. I always think of it in terms of a gap in the bookshelf, you know, where a book has been taken out, and the gap is there. Mm, A gap in the bookshelf. That's author Chinua Achebe talking about his decision to write his masterpiece, Things Fall Apart which ushered in a new era in world literature. The era where African countries, which had recently achieved post-colonial independence, now achieved an independence of a different kind, the freedom of imagination and artistry, as African authors told the stories of their geography, their culture, and their experience from the point of view of Africans, and not from the point of view of those who perceived them only from the outside. A gap in the bookshelf. What a perfect metaphor. It's very perfect for Achebe. His style is striking but subtle. It's the perfect metaphor, vivid and expressive. What could be worse than a gap in the bookshelf? Who would be in favor of gaps? Book-burning Nazis? Censors? Those who stubbornly wish to remain ignorant? And yet, it's also more than a metaphor. It's quite literally what was happening. There were gaps in the bookshelf. There were stories that were not being told in print. Literature was not complete. Well, maybe it's never complete, but it was not fulfilling its potential. It was more than a gap. It was an entire shelf, empty, not there. It reminds me of another metaphor, this one by Joseph Conrad, who is a key part of the story, as we'll see. It comes in the heart of darkness, where the storyteller Marlowe recalls his youthful fascination with maps, and in particular, with the absence of definition when it came to the, quote, dark continent, unquote. He writes, quote, Now when I was a little chap, I had a passion for maps. I would look for hours at South America or Africa or Australia and lose myself in all the glories of exploration. At that time, there were many blank spaces on the earth, and when I saw one that looked particularly inviting on a map, but they all look that, I would put my finger on it and say, when I grow up, I will go there. The North Pole was one of those places I remember. Well, I haven't been there yet, and shall not try now. The glamour's off. Other places were scattered about the equator, and in every sort of latitude all over the two hemispheres. I have been in some of them, and Well, we won't talk about that. But there was one yet, the biggest, the most blank, so to speak, that I had a hankering after. 
True. By this time, it was not a blank space anymore. It had got filled since my boyhood with rivers and lakes and names. It had ceased to be a blank space of delightful mystery, a white patch for a boy to dream gloriously over. It had become a place of darkness. But there was in it one river especially, a mighty big river that you could see on the map, resembling an immense snake uncoiled with its head in the sea, its body at rest curving afar over a vast country, and its tail lost in the depths of the land. And as I looked at the map of it in a shop window, it fascinated me as a snake would a bird, a silly little bird. Then I remembered there was a big concern, a company for trade on that river. Dash it all, I thought to myself, they can't trade without using some kind of craft on that lot of fresh water. Steamboats. Why shouldn't I try to get charge of one? I went along Fleet Street, but could not shake off the idea. The snake had charmed me. End quote. That's Conrad in The Heart of Darkness. First published in 1899, and by the mid-1950s, this was no longer a sustainable viewpoint. Or maybe I should say it was a viewpoint, but it was no longer the viewpoint. Because while the map might have been empty or filled with a few place names and a bunch of mystery... The continent wasn't. It wasn't mysterious to the people living there, unless we count the eternal mysteries of the human heart. It was rich with culture, with tradition, with traditions changing and traditions being upended. It was full of pride and ambition and rational thought and irrational impulses. It was complex, with love and lust and pride and anger and jealousy and honor and duty and reverence for the sacred, turning a human life into an odyssey, and a village into a civilization, and a group of people into a pageant of clashing humanity at its finest and most meaningful. And the Chebe said, this is the story that's not being told. It's all here. It's all here. It's as rich as anything you'll find in any culture from any viewpoint. It's not a blank space. It's teeming with the source material for literature. A new kind of literature, a fascinating kind of literature, unnecessary literature. It's often said that people need their voice to be heard. They need their spot on the shelf. It's redeeming to a society to have their own people writing their story. Maybe the people of Africa needed literature in that sense, but literature needed them too. We're going to take a closer look at the life of Chinua Achebe, the achievement of Things Fall Apart, and the reception and legacy of that book. We'll dive into Achebe's famous essay on Joseph Conrad and the Heart of Darkness, and what it provoked, and we'll talk about what this all means for us today. Chinua Achebe, the life, literature, and legacy, today, on the History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Chinwa Achebe. Things fall apart. We even get a little Yates in there, right in the title. It's hard to imagine a more important book in the 20th century. Reminds me a little of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. When you read the book and read about the impact that it had, oh, people seem to say this can happen. And the floodgates open. And it's a great book, a worthy novel, very readable even today. We'll talk about what it does well. We are up to episode 191. 
everyone. We're steaming toward 200. Still haven't decided what to do for that milestone. If you have an idea, let me know at Twitter or by email. And as always, if you would like to support the podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature for a small monthly monthly contribution. Or you can buy me a virtual coffee over at historyofliterature.com slash shop. There's some gear there as well, mugs and and tote bags, which I don't know how much longer they'll be up there. So, heck now. <laughs> Your generosity is much appreciated. Let's listen to an email to get things rolling today. This one comes from Varsha. Subject line, from a novice listener. Hi, Jack. My name is Varsha, and I am a postdoc in astrophysics at a lab in France. I am a recent convert to the concept of podcasts, and subsequently a new listener of yours. I listen to you when I go to work in the morning, when I come back in the evening, and when I go for contemplative walks at night. I find your voice very soothing and conducive to thinking long background thoughts. It might not sound like much, but it is an impressive feat. I sit in front of a computer all day, either reading research papers slash tech manuals or coding, which raises the noise levels in my brain to a feverish pitch. Amidst all that racket, your voice comes through as an emollient for my cerebral cogs, almost like an imaginary friend. So, thank you for that. I do, however, have a small, insignificant, minuscule suggestion, which you should totally feel free to ignore. Most people who read Proust or Faulkner at Alia for fun are either writers themselves or people who have actually studied literature, in my illiterate opinion, of course. While featuring them is great for readers like me to get a taste of them and possible reading recommendations, it'd be great if you could throw in a little Tolkien or Rowling into the mix. Just so people like me who read by word of word of mouth know it's not a typo. Don't feel left out. Like I said, just a suggestion. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Varsha. Varsha, thank you so much for the email, and I think a postdoc in astrophysics goes right up there with our Swedish postal worker and our traveler to Mongolia and all the other wonderful emailers and locations we've heard from. Incredible. Mike Palindrome and I were budding astrophysicists once upon a time. I'll never forget the moment when our professor did an entire lecture's worth of calculations and then concluded, so, as you can see, the sun is a very hot thing. Indeed it is. And Mike and I were hot for astrophysics, but we were even hotter for literature, which is why today I'm here talking about Chinua Achebe and not some dwarf star in the middle of some remote galaxy. You have a great suggestion, which is to do a little more of, shall we say, popular literature. I'll have to find the right angle on that one. Today's book is very readable, as are a lot of other authors we've done, but I agree, I agree, I agree. There's no sense being a snob about this, and there's some great work out there that often flies below the radar of shows like this one. Science fiction, fantasy fiction, crime fiction, I like it all, even if it's not James Joyce. And I like thinking about the effects that these books have on readers, and how they reflect what people are choosing to read, and why. So, that goes on the list, and thank you for the beautiful email. Good luck exploring the universe. Speaking of universe, let's take a quick break and then come back with our discussion of the great and universal Chinua Achebe. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Chinua Achebe was born in 1930 in an Igbo town in southeastern Nigeria, with Igbo referring to a particular ethnic group, one of the ethnic groups native to Nigeria. The Igbo have their own language, which is part of the Niger-Congo language family, along with more common languages like Yoruba and Swahili. The Igbo people today work as craftsmen, farmers, and traders. The most important crop by far is the yam, the stocky brown tuber, that's been the staple food among West African peoples for thousands of years. The yam is prominent in Achebe's writing as the people work their lives around the growth and harvesting and stockpiling and trading of yams, and the Igbo celebrate the end of the rainy season and the new harvest. Achebe claims that the Igbo should be classified somewhere between a tribe and a nation. Others call them a stateless nation, but they share a set of traditions a quasi-democratic republican system of government, and superstitions and taboos. Achebe, as he served as a sort of interpretive cultural ambassador to the West, pointed out the, the blind spot that we have towards superstitious behavior. My son earlier this week asked me whether it was true that the Chinese are superstitious. He was learning something in school and asked me to confirm it. Well, I lived in China for a while and I had a few examples ready. I learned these the hard way. Don't write a name in red, for example. You signify that that person will die soon. And we smile and shrug at how primitive this belief seems. How can red ink have that kind of effect? And then, even as we're smiling and shrugging, we think nothing of hotels or other tall buildings going from floor 12 to floor 14, which according to some Elevator Company occurs in something like 85% of all buildings here in America. That's one of the keys to reading works like Achebe's. Understand and accept the traditions for what they are. That doesn't mean we have to give them all credit or say that they are as good or better or not as good as a tradition in the country where we live. That's not the point. This isn't anthropology exactly, and it's not political science. We're not Ask to vote for a policy. Our job is to understand the story on its terms, in its context. And sometimes that means recognizing that our position is not more advanced or higher or more developed. Our sensibility is not more refined or truer or anything like that. 
We can find common themes like masculinity and its absence, like pride and its defeat, where we can easily recognize in our own cultures whatever those may be. The beauty of reading literature is how it works its magic if you're open to the magic. In the hands of a writer like Achebe, who presents the society and context in stark prose, without a lot of authorial commentary to make you feel like you're reading the encyclopedia or a report from the United Nations or something like that. You see the people. You see what motivates them, what values they have, what moral dilemmas they are faced with. And you take all that on its own terms and immerse yourself in the story and rise and fall and live and die with the main characters. And along the way, you're learning a lot about someone else and a lot about yourself. Maybe even more, actually. I would say probably even more. It's like reading the Epic of Gilgamesh, or the Bible, or Homer, or Proust, or Pasternak, for that matter. None of those are my world. None of them are truly recognizable to me. And yet, they all are, when you go to the right level of abstraction. So that's how we read Achebe. We take what we know about African culture and society, and we apply it, and we take our own knowledge of our own world and apply it, and we try to set aside obstructions like assuming that the religion we practice is advanced and necessary, but all others are ridiculous and false, or that the superstitions in others we see are childlike and silly, but that our superstitions are just a fact of life and reasonable for adults to hold. We're all human, even from a hundred years ago, even on another continent, even in another culture. For at least 3,000 years, an African civilization flourished in Nigeria, virtually free of Western influence. We have artifacts and other cultural relics from this period, dating from 1500 BC to 1500 AD. Life-size terracotta sculptures and ceremonial pots and copper masks. They had kingdoms and religious customs and rituals and parables and sayings and mythologies to explain the world around them including a creation myth. In 1500, the Portuguese appeared on the scene, and we see an engagement between Nigeria and the Western world for the next few hundred years, with the impact coming mostly from trade, including the horrors of the slave trade. And then, in the second half of the 19th and the first decades of the 20th century, the British Empire moved in, conquering the country and turning it into a colony. Christian missions arrived as well, setting up educational institutions, and spreading the word of Christianity. In 1930, then, Achebe was born into a society with an enormous past and, by comparison, a very new and different present. It was a society that was still in transition as the generations moved from complete African independence to one dominated by the forces of colonialism. Achebe's parents were in the middle of this. They themselves were respectful of the old traditions, although they had converted to Protestant Christianity and stopped practicing the religion of their ancestors. Achebe's father was Isaiah Okafo, his mother, Janet Ananechi. Achebe's birth name was Albert. Chinwa was an abbreviation of his middle name, and his siblings had similar names with English names like Frank, John, and Grace as their first name and African middle names. The intersection of Christianity and British culture on the one hand and traditional culture and a way of life, on the other, had a profound effect on Chinua, even as a boy. His mother and sister told him folk tales. He attended traditional village events like masquerade ceremonies. He also read Shakespeare, 
His father owned a copy of Midsummer Night's Dream in English and a version of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress translated into Igbo. He received an English education starting at a religious school for young children where his intelligence made him stand out, especially his advanced reading skills. He went to what was then called University College, Nigeria's first university, which had opened in 1948 in preparation for independence. Achebe started as a student of medicine, but he was soon drawn to literature, and he was critical of European literature about Africa. In particular, Joyce Carey's 1939 work, Mr. Johnson, which had a cheerful Nigerian man who worked for an abusive British store owner. Later, Achebe recalled that his classmate told the professor that the only enjoyable moment in the book was when Johnson was shot. Achebe recognized the author's cultural ignorance and objected to the treatment of Nigerian characters as either savages or smiling buffoons. He decided then to become a writer. He wrote stories and essays for university magazines and began to explore subjects like comparative religion and anthropology and history, which helped him to make sense of the hybrid world he lived in. After he graduated, he got a job with the Nigerian Broadcasting Service, preparing scripts, which led to a position with the BBC and a trip to London. While there, he met a novelist named Gilbert Phelps, and he shared what he was working on with Phelps, a novel that eventually became Things Fall Apart. Phelps was enthusiastic, and he wanted to take it to his editor and publishers, but Achebe said he wanted some time to work on it some more. He refined the prose and cut out some sections. He gave it the name Things Fall Apart, which came from the AIDS poem. And then, this is one of those literary miracles. He responded to an advertisement and sent his only copy to a typing service in London. And that was it. Months went by. He heard nothing. And he realized that he had sent the only copy he had, a handwritten copy of a book he'd spent years writing, to a company that was not going to do anything with it. They took his 22 pounds and buried the thing in their office. Luckily... Achebe had a connection. His boss at the Nigerian Broadcasting Service, a woman named Angela Beatty, who was headed to London for her annual leave. She went to the company and demanded to know what had happened to the work. They found it, they quickly finished it up, and sent it back to Achebe. Later, Achebe said, quote, Had the novel been lost, I would have been so discouraged that I probably would have given up writing altogether. End quote. Instead, he sent the novel to an agent and some publishers where it found a home. Heinemann put out 2,000 copies in 1958, and critics loved it. Achebe's reputation was set. He followed it up with several other novels, books of essays, and poetry. He married a co-worker from the Nigerian Broadcasting Service. They had a few children. He wrote children's books. He started winning prizes and traveling. He was accepted into a circle of major international writers and he became influential in fostering the careers of many African writers. Nigeria fell into a civil war, and Achebe was forced to leave his native land in the late 1960s. He ended up in the United States, where he took a position at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and he continued to hold academic appointments for the next few decades, including back in the University of Nigeria. He wrote a famous article criticizing Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which forever changed the way that both that work and its author were viewed. 
When he was 60, he was badly hurt in a car accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down, and he lived the next 23 years in a wheelchair, writing and traveling, and receiving awards and prizes and honorary degrees. By now, his influence was clear and undeniable. The Father of African Literature was the title often used. He died in 2013 in Boston as one of the most celebrated literary figures in the world. I want to dig into two things in more detail. First, his novel Things Fall Apart, and then his essay about Conrad and the controversy that it triggered. Let's take a quick break, then come back with more on Chinua Achebe. Achebe did not start out life wanting to be a writer. In fact, he didn't even understand that such a profession was possible. Quote, I did not know that I was going to be a writer because I did not really know of the existence of such creatures until fairly late. The folk stories my mother and elder sister told me had the immemorial quality of the sky and the forests and rivers. End quote. That's such an interesting idea, the way that oral stories or even written stories when they come from an oral or folk tradition can seem like they don't belong to any one particular mind, but to the collective consciousness or even to the earth itself. They're like spirits swirling around us like the wind. What fascinates me about this in Achebe's case in particular is that his own work, Things Fall Apart, has some of this quality as well. Achebe is a very engaging first-person author. His essays are little gems of anecdote and insight, drawing from small incidents the meaning he's intending to convey. He comes across in his first-person works as wise and generous and gentle and strong, unwavering without being bombastic, the strength of a single tree willing to stand firm against the wind. But things fall apart is different. It's not the work of an author inserting himself into a narrative and calling attention to himself. You could forgive him if it was. You could forgive him for making it all about him, for saying, what about me? I'm here. Why is no one talking about me? This is the quickest and most obvious way to assert oneself in the literary canon. Have a scarcely disguised narrator. Oh, says the narrator, you think the world is only white and male and heterosexual and European? Well, I'm here and I have a voice. Nothing against those books. There are some great books in that category. And when the voice is compelling enough, they can also rise to the top rank of literature. Even when they don't, they can be necessary for their time and amuse us and enlighten us. But Things Fall Apart is different. Things Fall Apart is like a fusion of something ancient and something modern. It's not a replica of an oral tradition, exactly. It's also not simply a standard-issue modern novel. It's a blend of the two. We follow the main character, Okonkwo, a village leader, a warrior, a wrestling champion, through several stages in his intellectual development. First, we see him with his father, whom he views with some disdain. His father is weak, a musician. Okonkwo struggles with masculinity, and I mean that in the sense that he has so much of it, it has become something of a burden to him. He views the world in those terms, in terms of being a man, and when something happens that he disagrees with, he views it as unmanly. 
He agonizes over the fact that his daughter is the toughest child he has, the only one who truly understands him, the only one worthy of carrying on his spirit in the proper way. And yet she's a girl, not a boy, so she can't. It's a portrait of a particular type of hero, or if not hero, then let us say flawed leader of a particular era. This is the 19th century, where the novel is set, and Okonkwo's world is about to be upended in a couple of ways. It's also a world of tradition, of rich pageantry and strong beliefs. There's a value system here. Rights are carefully delineated and respected. Justice is determined and punishments handed down. Parables and myths and shared histories help communicate and are used to inform decisions. But here's where Achebe's book is so wonderful, and I think this is why he's considered the father of modern African literature. He wasn't the first African author published in a European marketplace, or the first African author to be published in English or anything like that. And it's not that this book is even clearly the best. There are many other excellent novels that followed, and to try to put one above all the others would be foolish. But what he did is to take this tradition, all the folklore, all the customs, all the spirituality and mundane details and economic struggles and day-to-day life of the Igbo in the 19th century, all that oral storytelling power, including sayings and superstitions and triumphs and fears, and to fuse that with modern expectations and novelistic technique. We see inside the minds of the protagonists. We see them struggling with their decisions. We see their dilemmas and how their values and their belief systems limit their choices. And we see that in ways that are recognizable to us. Listen to this passage, for example. Quote, Perhaps down in his heart, Okonkwo was not a cruel man, but his whole life was dominated by fear, the fear of failure and of weakness. It was deeper and more intimate than the fear of evil and capricious gods and of magic, the fear of the forest and of the forces of nature, malevolent, red in tooth and claw. Okonkwo's fear was greater than these. It was not external, but lay deep within himself. End quote. That's part of what Achebe is doing so well here. It takes a kind of Homeric tale, a Gilgameshian tale, a story of leadership and struggle, and it combines that kind of storytelling with the traditions and ideas and the detailed description of the physical and mental worlds of the characters. It combines all that with the modern novelistic technique that conveys psychological depth. Before you open Things Fall Apart, you might have no idea of how a 19th century leader of an Igbo village would face a particular dilemma, what it would mean for him personally, how a failing would resonate. Okonkwo is banished from his village. Well, how would that affect him? What will he do in response? That's what Achebe shows us. That's part of the dramatic tale. But even better... Achebe provides the context in which we understand why this is dramatic. We understand the stakes for Okonkwo, how this threatens not just his position in the village and his economic fortunes, but his entire way of understanding his role in his society, his place in the universe. And while he's gone, serving out his punishment, this is the second big upheaval, the Christians arrive, they make inroads, they build a church, they start to become more accepted. Okonkwo, we're quite sure, the manliest of the men, would not have tolerated the infringement. He'd have resisted, have gone on the attack, would not have let the disruption fester. That's his view, anyway. And when he returns after years in exile, he has to decide what to do and how. 
Now the village has changed. Some of the Christian ideas have taken hold. The traditions are morphing around him. And once again, the beauty of Achebe is not just that we see how he responds, which is exciting enough, but we're already in a position to know why this matters. We feel the sting of a lost tradition, too. We aren't just dropped into the world where we decide that one custom can trump another custom. The new can wash over the old, and this is progress, or it's inevitable, and so why spend our time worrying about it? We've seen the richness. We've seen the elaborate set of norms and values as they play out across a people. We see how these ideas are as familiar and necessary to them as the sun and the sky and the air. What happens? when those ideas are part of the conflict. That's part of the story, too. It's not just a warrior who's faced with a battle against the strangers who have arrived. It's not just a warrior relying on an ancient way of life, faced with strangers who have more modern, quote-unquote, beliefs. It's a story of the clash of ideas. What happens when the time-tested ancient customs are put to the test against a different set of values and norms and ideas and arguments. What will happen? What are the consequences? To put all this into a few hundred pages so you can see this conflict on all these different levels, it's truly a testament to the power of literature and to Achebe as a master practitioner. It's a work of art. It sparked my love affair with African literature, Toni Morrison said of the book, Maya Angelou said it was a book where, quote, all readers meet their brothers, sisters, parents, and friends, and themselves along Nigerian roads, end quote. A magical writer, Margaret Atwood said, one of the greatest of the 20th century. Nelson Mandela read Achebe when in prison and said he was a writer in whose company the prison walls fell down. Achebe won seemingly every possible prize, except the Nobel, which is insane. Yet another huge miss for the Nobel. Joyce, Proust, Achebe. When they miss, they miss big. After the incredible success of Things Fall Apart, which is so accessible and yet so complex, it resonated with school teachers and academics alike, common readers and critics. It has sold millions of copies and been translated into something like 70 languages. After that kind of success, Achebe had another role to play as the father of African literature, as a leading intellectual, as a kind of cultural ambassador to the world. He now had responsibilities, obligations. He helped young writers, he served on committees, he taught, and he engaged with the world of literature, both contemporary authors and our look at the past. And he had an impact there, too. In particular, his essay on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness has become extremely important in the history of literature. As always with Achebe, it's deceptively simple. The ideas are presented in a logical, straightforward way. The voice is quiet. The anger is there, but not bubbling over. It's like a, an indictment of the story and of Conrad, delivered by an attorney who faces the jury and speaks with conviction delivered in sorrow, or maybe I should say in the tone of sober, unflinching analysis, in sorrow more than anger. An image of Africa is called, subtitle, Racism in Conrad's Heart of Darkness. He delivered it as a lecture at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in February of 1975. He presents his case fairly, but he doesn't shrink from his conclusion. Joseph Conrad, he says, 
was a thoroughgoing racist. And The Heart of Darkness is a racist story with damaging stereotypes of black peoples. There was, inevitably, a backlash. This is one of the great Western works of art, a masterpiece, and Conrad is one of literature's heroes. The story feels important. It is important. And isn't it anti-colonial? That's the defense. It's against colonialism on the side of the angels. This isn't Rudyard Kipling or one of those authors talking about the forces of light arriving to help the savages escape their misery. It's against all that. It shows clearly how colonialism eats away at the souls of the people who are there, carrying it out, leading them into a world of horror, and how the world in London lives in denial of all this, enjoying the prosperity without reckoning with the horrors that made that prosperity possible. How can it be racist? if it attacks a racist system. Well, both can be true. Both can be true. A text can attack a racist system and still be racist. After reading Achebe, it's hard not to agree with his assessment. He quotes the passages where the black people are described as savages, as incomprehensible, as an incomprehensible frenzy. Marlowe is repulsed by them, by their movements, by their appearance, and by the notion, horrifying to him, that they seem almost human, that they resemble humans, that they're human-like enough that he might actually find something in himself that's like them and something in them that's like himself. This isn't a cause for curiosity or celebration. It's viewed as uncanny, a nightmare, a horrendous phenomenon to observe and contemplate. It's worse when the African has some signs of civilization when he's been educated or is wearing Western clothes. Like a dog in breeches, Marlowe says, walking on his hind legs. He ought to have been clapping his hands and stamping his feet on the, on the bank. Instead, he's this hybrid like a half-human, half-animal from the island of Dr. Moreau. A thrall to strange witchcraft is Marlowe's assessment. Even defenders of Conrad generally have a hard time with these details. Unnecessary, they say, cruel. They argue that this is the story of a breakdown of a European mind, that there's some distance between Conrad the author and Marlowe the narrator. Conrad's showing the racism of a European mind. Achebe is not convinced. There's not enough distance. But he also made clear he wasn't calling for a ban of the book. He said, I never said at any point that you should stop attaching artistic merit to Heart of Darkness. If you want to, you can. There are all kinds of sophisticated readings of Heart of Darkness, and there are some people who will not be persuaded that there's anything wrong with it. But all that I'm really demanding, I'm not simply putting it, I'm demanding that my readings stand beside these other readings. Although he's writing good sentences, he's also writing about a people and their life, and he says about these people that they are rudimentary souls. The Africans are the rudimentaries, and then on top are the good whites. Now, I don't accept that as a basis for as a basis for anything, end quote. But here's the thing. We don't have to argue with the critics on the terms of the critics. We have two ways of going about this. We can read Conrad, and we can read Achebe, and we can use Things Fall Apart as a counterweight to the Heart of Darkness. We can say that both of these novels are about colonialism and its effects, and both of them are incredible to read, and both of them leave us with some questions about the characters and their unsavory nature. Okonkwo, from Things Fall Apart, is flawed. He commits some violent acts that are hard to justify if they're not outright atrocities in the book. 
Among his other flaws, Marlowe is clearly a racist, and Conrad might be too. If someone denies that, if they refuse to acknowledge it, they're missing what is patently clear in the text. So let's say we can read both, and we had a third book. How about a book about Africa from an African woman's perspective? That would be useful as well. How about one set in 2019 that takes an even longer view? Also useful. Reading more good books helps us all understand all aspects of these situations and scenarios. Achebe wants to make sure we don't read Conrad and stop there. But there's another way of going about this as well. We don't just need to read a series of books, each one giving a different perspective to be well-rounded. If we are ourselves well-rounded, we can supply that reading as we read each of these books. After reading Things Fall Apart, you don't need to be told that Heart of Darkness is racist. You don't even need to think of that term. You supply that yourself, even if it's in your subconscious. You read about the mysteries of the frenzy of movement and the incomprehensibility of it all, and you don't think Marlowe is describing some natural phenomenon in any sort of deep or meaningful way. You think how much he's missing, how much he doesn't know. You've seen from your reading of Achebe how complex the society is, how the value system is embedded in the individuals who wrestle with the same kinds of problems that everyone else in the world does. What is truth? What is right? What is justice? What is love? What is family? What is death? It's not dumb, blinkered, unthinking dancing, savage killing for no reason and with no thought. There's no incomprehensibility here. There's only ignorance. And you read this and you think, Marlowe is missing this entirely, and maybe Conrad is too. He certainly isn't doing anything to show that he had any deeper understanding than Marlowe. But you do. You do because you've read Achebe, and he's shown you. He's filled in the gap on the bookshelf. And in doing so, he's shown you the gaps in other books as well, and maybe the gaps in your own education and your own way of thinking. He's shown you the gaps, and he's shown you how to fill them in. He's shown you what's not there, and what should be. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, Chinua Achebe. What a fantastic author. Go check him out. You can find more of our shows at historyofliterature.com or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please click the five-star button to give us a little boost or leave us a review if you're so inclined. We'll be back with some contemporary authors and another fun one with Mike Palindrome. That's coming up soon. If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature or just head over to buy some gear at historyofliterature.com slash shop. I'm thinking of taking down the shop as i mentioned earlier maybe after the holidays so get your mugs and tote bags now they make nice gifts as does a copy of things fall apart i just bought a new copy in the penguin edition which is beautiful of course penguin time to sponsor the podcast i'm giving you enough free airtime. just kidding I love you all, and I love your books. Speaking of love, dear listeners, I love the emails I get from you, and I love knowing you're out there. And can I say it? I love you. Ah, you're blushing. Well, don't be so shy. You deserve it. 
It's time I came right out and said it. Those three little words. You are the best. You have earned it. I hope that's the case. I suspect it is, but I suppose we might have a few rogues and cads who listen. I love you unless you are a rogue or a cad. Or one of those hate listeners who should probably find something better to do. Although, what do I care? Hate listeners are welcome too, I guess. Maybe I hate podcasted at you guys. Ha ha. What do you think of that? You're out there hate listening, but I beat you to the punch. I hate talked first. No. No, that's not right, of course. I can only do what I can do. I can only do this thing as an expression of my best self, the side of me that loves literature and my fellow travelers on this journey, the side of me that's filled with gratitude and that always says, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.